So, we continue our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and following. Anytime I start the preparation for these classes, I always first start reading the material and start thinking, okay, how much of this can I cover in one hour? And I think, oh, I can't. I can't fill an hour. There's no way. I mean, the text is so obvious. I mean, you just read it and go, okay, that's what it says. So why are we even bothering with this exercise? Well, that's one of the beauties of Bible study is every time you come to the text, there's always something new. The Word of God is endless. Its, its depths are uh, you just cannot plumb all of, all of the depths of the of the Word of God. But I also like to ask questions, as you know, why is Paul writing, or why is Matthew has written this particular passage, or wherever we are in the text, we have to say, why is this being discussed? Because what was the topic last week in verses 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians? What's the header on your text? Divisions, divisions in the church. So that makes perfect sense. Obviously there were some dissension, there were some misunderstandings, there was arguments between people or uh, a lack of understanding of of scripture. So why from verse 18 through the end of chapter 2 does Paul not talk about divisions anymore? He doesn't return to the topic of divisions until chapter 3. So we have this very long excursus, to use a highfalutin word, of, well, let's see, this would be 23, 13, 29 verses, where he doesn't talk about divisions. He talks about wisdom. Why would he be doing this? What do you think? Obviously, we haven't read it yet, but uh, in, in your just a cursory understanding, why would Paul seemingly deviate from what seemed to be a very practical setup? Is that there's divisions among you. Some are saying you're following Paul, some Apollo, some of Cephas, and some of Christ, and that's just kind of silly. Why would he go for such a long period of time with this heavy philosophical discussion? Why would he do that? Don't think I have the answer. So, <laughs> maybe to encourage them. Do you think it, you know it makes it last them? But so he needs to encourage them. He can't just like solve it. Okay. So, but then just to key off of that, what is encouraging about a philosophical discussion? God's perspective. Okay. Good. Good. To focus them on Christ. Okay. Uh, focus on up instead of horizontal. Right, right. Yeah. I'm going to say this wisdom creates uh, you not to be a fool, and foolish people argue. Good point. In other words, you're acting like the world, and you're not acting like Christ. It's, it's interesting because of what, what we're going to run into here, but he came. In our chronology, he went from Athens to Corinth and began his work in in Corinth. But he wasn't in Athens very long. And Athens is the seat of philosophy and philosophical thought. And he had this, what we, when we read this amazing presentation of the gospel in Athens. But he left and went to Corinth. Granted, Corinth was the bigger city. But did his effort in Athens come to naught because he was dealing with the philosophers? We don't know. But here we are. He goes to Corinth and he leaves. And we're now about three years later, maybe four. And he's writing back to them. And it makes you wonder if within the church, some of the reports that he received was that they were being titillated, they were being seduced 
by the wisdom of the world, by the philosophers and the philosophies of the secular world that had begun to penetrate into the church itself. Is that plausible? Do you think maybe? Especially, Sam, hmm? especially if some of these guys were really good speakers. Right. They were very articulate, just brilliant in their expositions. Doesn't that sound kind of like a modern problem that we have today? That we have the church, we have the scriptures, and yet we have so many derivations or deviations from the Word of God that are very attractive. Extremely attractive. Anybody know what the number one best-selling uh, non-fiction book in the Christian market is right now? I'm probably the only one who knows in the room because it's my job. Uh, Jesus Calling? No. Best Life Now? The Unfreedom of the Press? No. Girl, wash your face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rachel Hollis. You may have never heard of it. It has sold five million copies in the last year. It has taken over the evangelical church by storm. Now, I'm not saying the book is heretical. I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with it, other than the fact that there's no gospel in it. <coughs> It's written by a Christian, by a believer, but the bottom line philosophy in the book is work hard and you can succeed. You know, in other words, bear down, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, take charge of your life. And it's, I mean, my guess is there's probably. 20, 30, 50 people even in our own congregation that have read it and thought it was wonderful. And you can look at it as wonderful on a surface, but when you look underneath the surface, what's there? It's the wisdom of the world. This is what the world tells us. It's not a whole lot different than Tony Robbins or some other motivational speaker. It just has scripture or God language sprinkled into it. And it's dangerous without discernment. You can read something like that and actually gain truth if you have discernment. But I would say discernment is uh, generally lacking in our culture today. We <laughs> accept things for their face value rather than looking under the face. Well, none of that was in my notes. Um, so I guess we need to start looking at the text itself. Now, when I gave this to you, I gave you the handout starting with verse 18. Problem is, to really understand this passage, you have to look at the previous verses. Because verse 18 starts with the word for. That means something came ahead of it, and he's now expanding on it more so. Just the previous verse. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right there is an exercise in how you need to ignore the subheadings and the chapter divisions and even the verse references when you read scripture. Because most people, even we did, when we were studying it, we stopped at verse 17, because it's the natural break in our Bibles. But the division between verse 17 and verse 18 is not there. It's one continuous thought. Because he talks about the cross of Christ in verse 17. And then talks about the word of the cross. And as that is the logos of the cross. That's what it means. Or the message of the cross. Is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now, I'm not going to do this all the time. I'm going to, as we move into this, I'm going to read longer sections and then get back. But this one verse, fascinating. Look carefully, even in your English translation, at the tense that is being used. It is folly to those who are perishing, not who have perished, 
So it's present tense, and in the Greek it is present tense. But to us who are being saved, not to us who have been saved. Now isn't that interesting? You might go, well, well, wait, you you mean you're talking about they're not yet saved? Well, no, because salvation in the New Testament is, uses all three tenses. The past tense is when you have faith, you are justified by faith in the past. That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, or verse 24. It also talks about being saved in the present tense, as it is right here. Those who are being saved, and that's sanctification. That's the process of salvation, or the sanctification of the soul. And then there's the third tense, the future tense, which is glorification of what it will be in the future. H.A. Ironside was once accosted on the street by a street preacher. H.A. Ironside was the great um, Plymouth Brethren preacher of of the last century. And the guy yelled at him, are you saved? You know, how do you answer that when you're a Christian? I mean, it's like, yeah, dude. (laughs) Do you want to engage? Well, H.A. Ironside said, yes, I have been, I am being, and I shall be. And that's exactly what salvation is. It's past, present, and future. It is our, we can actually, many of us can actually delineate the time from this point forward, I am in Christ. That's in the past. We have that time stamp. Then we have this process as we move forward in our Christian life, growing, understanding the the deep things of God, which we'll look at later. And then there's that future that we are moving towards all in Christ. So justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we have it exhibited right here. Many people must literally just pass right over this verse because they don't see that. Because they need to get to the good stuff, which is the, the verses we put on pillows and plaques that come later in this chapter. Um, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now that is not an exact quote of Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14. You might have a verse reference in your study Bible or in your, your notes pointing you to 29.14. If you go to 29.14, it's not a quote. It's more of a paraphrase. Or if you go to the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's a lot closer to what you see rendered here. But in 1 Corinthians, this is the first time that Paul is alluding to Old Testament passages, and he will do it frequently. This is one of his great ways of underscoring his position and his point. He uses Old Testament scriptures because there wasn't a New Testament yet. Wrap your head around that. He couldn't cite himself by saying, well, in Romans, it says this. Well, he hasn't written Romans yet. And he's not about to cite himself anyway because he would be mortified that that would something he would do. But it carries on, and I'll just read the passage through verse 25, and then we'll come back and look at it a little more carefully. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So just for you know fun and uh, frivolity, we look at verse 20, and he names three different kinds of people. What are the three? Number one. What's it say? The wise. Number two. And then number three. The debater. What is he talking about? What do you think? I want to actually get you guys thinking this morning, not just absorbing. Who would be a wise person versus a debater or versus a scribe? What's the difference? What is he talking about here? And why would he be talking about it? Any thoughts? Go ahead. There's no wrong answers. Would the wise be the ones who hear the word of God and follow what it says to do? Possibly. Remember the word wisdom is Sophia. The sophists, the philosophers. The, uh, and then of course he talks about the wisdom of the world in the very next verse. So is he setting up to say these three are actually expressions of the wisdom of the world? So you would be correct except for they may be wise in their own minds, but they don't, still don't understand the word, but they're very smart. Very smart people. It's one possibility. What about scribes? Who would be the scribes that he's referring to? The writers. The writers. Um, legal. Hmm? I'm sorry? Having to do with the legal arena. Okay. Now, didn't Jesus talk a lot about the Pharisees and the scribes? And so, but in the world, not wise in God's eyes, but wise in the words. You know, the scribes. You know, it'd be the lawyers, the doctors, the 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 high thinkers of society in the day. Not we're not talking Solomon wisdom. We're talking world wisdom. We're talking the literati. Yes. These are the, you talk about the smart people, then we talk about, oh my gosh. You mentioned earlier the, the smart people who, who were from the rhetoric were good, they could express things very well. But then there's also, as I work in the writing world, there are some people who just have an ability to put words on the paper and you just sit there and look at that sentence and go, wow, that was brilliant. How you formulated those words in this in this fashion, and you just kind of step set back. You actually stop reading for a moment and go, "I've never thought of it that way." That's amazing. That's a scribe. But then he talks about the debater. Now, this the word for debater is S Y Z E T E T S, Sizetetes, and it's the only time in the New Testament it's ever ever used. We have no idea what it means. We have a general concept based on its, you know, its etymology, but that's why you have some translations have the have this as where is the, the philosopher of this age? The ESV uses the word debater. The idea is someone who not only has the rhetoric, but they also have the ability to win arguments. These are again smart people who are great debaters. Now, in our society, let's just take it, let's just throw it, go over the secular side, and you think of these very popular atheist debaters. Um, he's dead now, but Christopher Hitchens was very well known for this. But you have um, Dawkins and Sam Harris and some of these others. They're not only great scribes, they're good writers. I mean, I've read their material going, well, if I didn't know better, you're really persuasive. <laughs> uh, but I also know people 
on the Christian side. There's a fellow here locally, his name is James White, uh, part of Phoenix Reformed Church, and he's written dozens of, dozens of books. I was his editor years ago, and the man has not lost a debate, I don't think, in his entire life. It's extraordinary what he's able to do because he has it all in his head and all the research is in his head and he can access it in the middle of a debate on command. It's amazing. What's his last name? White. James White. W-H-I-T-E, just like the color. Yeah. I don't know, somewhere over there in the west side. Yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing debater. So you have this idea of he's setting up the stage saying, see all this wisdom? But then he says, but hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Oh, yeah, good point. For since in the wisdom of the, God, wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Because the Jews demand signs and the Gentiles, the Greeks, seek wisdom. But we proclaim, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to everybody. That's basically what he's saying. For Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Make very careful that you don't have a skeptic come to you and pluck verse 25 out and said, well, see, even the Bible says that God is foolish and weak. Because you could read that verse that way. It's an ad admission. No, it's not. It's a contrast. He's almost uh, writing ironically. He says, even, put it this way, even the dumbest person is smarter than a frog. Okay, that's kind of what he's saying. It's, you know, you can take God and take him all the way down to his smallest piece and he's still smarter than anything else that's out there. It's kind of what he's trying to say. But then he continues. Well, I'm going to jump in here. And I mentioned the contrast between the creator and the created. Uh, one preacher I was listening to he said, you know, let's contrast the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And let's put it in the form of animals. So have you ever watched a dog watch TV? No? They're engaged. They can bark. They can whine. They're actually, their tail might wag and they're kind of wondering what's going on. So they're engaged in the conversation. But you cannot dialogue with the dog about the plot. <laughs> don't, they, they have no way of comprehending beyond the surface of what they're seeing. I was talking to Lisa about this the other night. I said, it's kind of funny, and we were laughing about the comment. And I said, but so let's throw a cat into that discussion. And the cat probably understands, but does not care what you think. <laughs> so, who knows on this hierarchy, but it's that idea of God is God. He's so much more vast, and we think we're so smart. And we pat ourselves on the back, and we buff our knuckles on our shirts, and say, aren't we so smart? And God's just sitting there going, really? Do you want to discuss the plot? Because I know the end before the beginning. I set it all up before you were even a hint in creation. Put it in contrast. So the next verse verses says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not very many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful either. And not many of you are of noble birth. Remember that a lot of the early church was made up of slaves. That these were the disaffected. The, um, you had the combination of those that were some that were of noble birth, but the rest were normal people. 
I mean, more than half of the population in Corinth were slaves. More than half. But God, this is what gets macrameed or crocheted on a pillow, but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, underline that phrase, God chose. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see that beautiful paragraph, the progression And he's talking about the people in the congregation. He says, not many of you were the smarty pants in the room. You weren't the wealthiest. You weren't even of noble birth. But God chose you. And because of that, you are in Christ Jesus so that none of you can boast about who you are or what you do. Isn't it interesting, of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the great equalizer. There's no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female. There's there's no hierarchy. A lot of the other religions, well, they take their priests and they stick them way up here. You know, that's our tendency is to take our pastors and stick them up here. But if they're good pastors, they work very hard to bring themselves back down, saying, I'm just one of you. I have been called to this. I am a pastor. I am here to help you, but I'm not better than you. No way. Um, oh, wrong book. I brought too many books today, so I have to remember which one is which. This is from Chuck Swindoll's commentary on Corinthians. He says, we need to remember that cultured criticisms of Christian claims have been around since the early days of the church. In fact, around the year 210 AD, well, that's just a few years ago, 2,000 years ago, the Christian apologist Tertullian of Carthage engaged in a fierce defense of the faith against heretics who believed that the gospel was unsophisticated. It was too unsophisticated to accept as is. And they attempted to soften its rough edges, modify its offensive elements, and transform Christianity into something more philosophically pleasing to the elite thinkers of the day. 2,000 years ago. Sounds like today's news. We have to soften Christianity to make it acceptable. We have to dumb it down. We have to, let's not be offensive. Let's not tell people that they're sinners. Let's just say they've made mistakes in their life. In response to the charge that the message of incarnation, death and resurrection of the God-man was utter folly, Tertullian wrote, quote, well, of course it's foolish. If we are to judge God by our own conceptions, but consider well this scripture, if indeed you haven't erased it yet, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Quoting today's passage. Reminding his readers that the world's standards of intellectual respectability are irrelevant when it comes to the truth of God. In fact, Tertullian turned the tables on the skeptic and the critics. He said we should believe the claims of the gospel not in spite of their absurdity, but because of it. Think of that for a second. You should accept the claims of the gospel not because, well, because of its unbelievability. 
He argued that no reasoning human would ever make up something like the crucified God-man and try to preach it around the world unless it were true. If humans simply invented the gospel, they would have concocted something more philosophically respectable. Something like the perversions of the faith spouted by the heretics. Tertullian wrote, quote, The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because men must needs be ashamed of it. The Son of God died. It is by all means to, believe, to be believed because it's absurd. And he was buried and rose again. The fact is certain because it's impossible. The wisdom of the world is foolish. The wisdom of God is seen absurd by man. And don't we see that all the time? The skeptics who get on TV and mock Christianity? I mean, Friedrich Nietzsche actually wrote this. He said, Christianity is a religion for weaklings. How in the world could you believe in a God that could even be crucified? You know, you step back. You know, kind of take your, your faith cloak off. Take, if you can. And you kind of look at what we believe. We believe that the almighty creator of heaven and earth, who put the stars in the skies, if you believe there is a God, came down to earth in human form. Oh, by the way, but he was still God at the same time. And oh yeah, by the way, there's also a third member of the Trinity. But we'll get back to that later. And this God-man, who is all-powerful God, all-seeing God, all-knowing God, never sinned, and oh yeah, he let himself be killed so that he could be raised from the dead, like that can happen. I mean, seriously, you look at that, it's foolishness in the eyes of the world. So one, uh, one after another, the various writers and the preachers I was listening to, they kept coming back to this passage and saying, there is a very solid place in our world for apologetics. You should be able to defend your faith. But apologetics will never bring anyone to Christ because it's unreasonable. You cannot be reasoned into heaven. Think about that for a second. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But what is it that creates that connection to Christ? It's the Spirit of God. Never forget that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, got his doctorate in theology at the age of 21 and wasn't a Christian by his own definition. It wasn't until many years later that he had an encounter with the living Christ and that's when he wrote his book Cost of Discipleship. After he had learned everything about theology. He wrote an amazing book on ethics. He wrote other books that were extraordinary intellectual exercises. But that's all they were. They were philosophy. The philosophy of theology. Not the living Christ. We are in Christ Jesus, verse 30. So that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9.24. Then comes chapter 2, verse 1, which, by the way, should not be chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2 should begin at verse 6. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I'll leave that little uh, hint so you'll keep listening. Anyway, chapter 2, verse 1. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrating the Spirit and the power so that your faith not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wow. Just think about what he just said. Paul, the apostle, the one that 
when we have this picture of this guy, we have this picture of this amazing orator. I mean, we read his Mars Hill speech. We've read some of his writings. Uh, there have been some who try to extrapolate based on his grasp of Greek that he had to have a IQ of 180. I mean, you read Romans, you go, how could anybody think of that? Just, wow. That would make so much sense in the logic and, and the philosophy and the knowledge of the, of the scriptures. He had just a command of scripture. And he says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul? Really? I find that so comforting. Because whenever you get up to do a speech in front of people, even teaching a class, there's always a little butterfly that is not in formation, that is kind of <laughs> kicking other, kind of going, okay, am I going to remember what I need to say? Uh, I hope I don't, you know, shame my family by saying something and blurting out something. There's that element, and he had it too. He had it too, but he's admitting it to them, saying, I didn't come to you to try to overwhelm you with the rhetoric, the beautiful speech, as Tom mentioned earlier. But it's interesting, when Ron Ryder brought this out, Paul, in describing himself, did not use the Greek term which described the common man who was not a philosopher. And philosophy is philosophy, lover of wisdom. The word for the common man who is not a lover of wisdom is the Greek word idiotes. <laughs> Idiot. He did not use that word about himself, thankfully. But he used words like weakness, fear, trembling, not, not in plausible words, not in lofty speech, so that the power of God would come through when people understood it. Now, you may have heard these before, but I found it again. Um, the Greek philosopher Epictetus, now, Epictetus, Epictetus, doesn't matter. He wrote that it was important for a philosopher to look good. Isn't that interesting? We're talking, this is BC, this philosopher, Greek philosopher. Such a man needs also to have a certain kind of body. For if a consumptive comes forward thin and pale, his testimony no longer carries the same weight. Look, he says, both I and my body are witnesses to the lack of truth in my contention. And now the, the writer, the commentator, comes back and he says, although we obviously need to be careful not to project our own modern conventions of attractiveness onto ancient descriptions of physical appearance, it is interesting that Paul is described in a book called The Acts of Paul and Thelka as small, bald, bow-legged, unibrowed, with a hook nose. So let's imagine, little, little, nice little boy, little Paul, who's small, bald, bow-legged, unibrowed, with a hook nose. And he had health struggles, which also affected him. So Epictetus described, the philosopher who excites pity is regarded as a beggar and everyone turns away from him and everyone takes offense at him. I would say that we in our culture tend to gravitate to those who look good and those who do not, we discount very quickly. We make snap judgments based on visuals. And it's wrong. Imagine if Paul were to walk up 
to the podium this morning to begin preaching. And we would go, who is this bozo? What in the world? Can't you wear pants? What's with the robe guy? You know, I mean, seriously, we would just, we would have, what are, what are we looking at here? Until he would begin to speak. And we realize it's the power of God through him. He understood his own weaknesses. He knew this about himself. And he's willing to admit it. It talks about the plausible words of wisdom, the, um, the lofty speech. Make sure you don't think that Paul is preaching or saying that bad preaching is okay. He's not. But he is saying the use of clever rhetorical devices are not necessary. You can have a boring preacher like Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is well known for all the revival preaching he did that he never moved off the podium and just read and never looked up. And the power of God swept through the congregations as he spoke. It was not his oratory or his presentation. If you've ever watched or seen J.I. Packer speak, man, make sure you have a snooze button because he will put you to sleep. It's just very dry. But then if you stop and either close your eyes and just listen to the words, the oratory is there. The, the power of God is there. And the problem is me, is the listeners, I'm having my problem letting it through. But you also have the, uh, unfortunately, some modern preachers thinks it's the way to get people's attention is to do things like to zip line on, into the pulpit. I saw the video. So take our church, put a zip line from the sound booth at the top down to the front pro podium with a zip line, and the pastor jumps on the zip line and jumps down and goes, Praise Jesus! That's theater. That isn't God. Or there was a local pastor who, in preaching on the vine and the branches, in every one of the three services, used a chainsaw and cut down a tree on the stage. <laughs> very visual, very memorable, very theatrical. Now, I'm not saying there's, you shouldn't use illustrations, but sometimes you just go, what are you doing? The point here is God's Word. The point here is the message of God's Word. And you're putting in all these extra things into it that maybe it's because you don't trust your audience to be smart enough to listen. I don't know. Ray Pritchard wrote it this way. In the last 40 years, I've lived through the bus ministry, small group ministry, body life, Bill Gothard seminars, sharing services, charismatic renewal, church renewal, church growth, the balanced church, contemporary worship, renewal worship, Drama teams, liturgical worship, concerts of prayer, prayer and fasting, seeker-sensitive churches, experiencing God, the prayer of Jabez, the purpose-driven church, the 40 days of purpose, and not to mention the Puritan revival, the emerging church, Christian hedonism, Gen X worship, and preaching to the modern mind. You can find valuable truth in each of these trends and movements if you look for it, but sooner or later, all the movements are destined to be forgotten. There will just be one more addition to the stack of dusty seminar notebooks that you've lugged around from place to place for 40 years. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and only the Word of God lasts forever. And that's why Paul labored as he did in verse 5 of chapter 2, so that your faith not, might, might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That truth is so powerful and so true. So it carries on. Now, the reason why I say that the chapter should start at verse 6 is that the writer's tense changes from first person to third person. The previous verses have been I, Paul. And now, for the rest of the chapter, he talks about we. And then chapter 3, he goes back to I. fascinating. There, I don't know if there's anything really important about that distinction, but for some reason, 
Paul's been talking about, this is what I've done. And now he comes and says, we. Now he's including those who are in Christ, because he'd established that he has preached Christ crucified. That those of us who are in Christ are contrasted to the wisdom of the age. Verse 6. Yet among you, yet among the mature, by the way, you can contrast that verse with chapter 3, verse 2, where he talks about babes in Christ. So he says, but we, the mature, do impart wisdom, though it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, because if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, that's that verse 7 that people get hung up on. What is the secret and hidden wisdom of God? Ooh, cool. Sounds like a mystery for Scooby-Doo. How do we figure it out? What is the great secret? What is this hidden wisdom? Well, the whole of the Bible tells you what the hidden wisdom is, and it's foolishness to the world. But when you are in Christ, that wisdom is imparted to you, and you have it. That wisdom is no longer secret. And he is saying, we have imparted to you the wisdom of God, which God decreed before creation. It says, before the ages, for our glory. Now, every once in a while, I come across some interesting quotations and illusions. This one I actually found on my own, because I've been listening to a podcast about books that were influential to great teachers. And they mentioned this one called The The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. This is volume one of The Existence and Attributes. The two volumes compromise about 1,200 pages of very dense text. Obviously, he's a Puritan who likes to start with a premise and go on and on and on and on. Section 9, or the Discourse 9 in this book, is called On the Wisdom of God, and it's 120 pages long. So this concept right here that we're studying, this great Puritan writer, just, he's trying to plumb the depths of God. And you know when he was done writing, he realized, well, shoot, I didn't do it. I could write ten times more, and he could. But I do want to read one brief, very brief little quote of what he says about the wisdom of God. When we translate Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the Targum expresses it this way. The Targum is the, um, uh, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament right around the first century. So it was basically putting the Old Testament, not the Greek Old Testament, because not everybody could read Greek, but everyone could speak uh, Aramaic. And Aramaic, the Targum actually was first a oral translation. It was passed from person to person, the language of the people. But the Targum expresses Genesis 1-1 as, in wisdom, God created the heaven and the earth. Isn't that interesting? in their own little way. They weren't saying in the beginning, they were saying in his wisdom, God created the heaven and the earth. And when the apostle tells the Romans in Romans 1.20, the invisible things of God were clearly understood by the things that are made. That's why I'm bringing it up, because we have, we're talking about secret and hidden wisdom, and in Romans 1 he talks about the invisible things of God were made visible or clearly understood by the things that are made. And the word that Paul uses is poinma for made, not ergoi. Ergoi, we get the word ergonomic, means to work, a labor. To poinma is a skill. Not just digging ditches, but someone who could finally craft something. 
And he says, like a poem. The whole creation is a poem. Every species a stanza. Every individual creature a verse. The creation presents us with a prospect of the wisdom of God as a poem does the reader with the wit and the fancy of the composer. By wisdom he created the earth, Proverbs 3.19, and stretched out the heavens by discretion, Jeremiah 10.12. There is not anything average, anything so small, but glitters with a beam of divine skill, and the consideration of them would justly make every man subscribe to that of the psalmist, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Which is Psalm 104, 24. The wisdom of God created everything. This secret wisdom, this hidden wisdom, has been made visible to the world, but they don't see it. But we, as believers, can and do and should. Verse 9. Oh, I'm sorry. I also have another verse I want to read. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. Paul is talking about this grand mystery which is unfathomable to those in the world but to those who believe it's opened for us. But then verse 9 says, As it's written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You'll probably notice in your Bible that you don't have a footnote for what verse that is because nobody knows. It says, for it is written, but nobody knows what Paul's quoting. Isn't that kind of like, what? This is one of those weird times where scholars have debated, they've dug around, they've looked at other literature, they've looked at classic Greek literature, and they can't find this quote verbatim. But it could be that this was Paul's summary of Isaiah 64, verse 4. If you go there, you'll see some words, some phraseology that's similar. It could also be taken from Psalm 31, 19, or Isaiah 52, 15. But anyway, it's still an extraordinarily wonderful way of saying that the human senses are inadequate to understand God's will. These things have been revealed to us, verse 10, have been ap apocalypto, revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Years ago, I, I may have told you this story before, I couldn't remember if I did. Um, I had the privilege of editing Calvin Miller's book called Into the Depths of God. Obviously pulled from this verse and from some others. He had one of the best illustrations at the beginning of his book of where he, his wife, and his son visited the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia. He says, we went out there in a boat where you know, my son brought his scuba gear and my wife and I brought our snorkeling gear and we dove into this water. It's the weirdest thing to be standing in the middle of the ocean in two feet deep water. You know, as far as the eye can see, there's no land, but you're kind of standing in this, like, oh, cool, I'm literally standing on water. Says, but there's all sorts of fish, and it's a wonderful experience. So my wife and I enjoyed it thoroughly. The the snorkeling, you know, because you know you're just kind of go along the surface. And says my son, of course, went down 30, 40 feet and had a great time as well. But here's my point. If you ask any of us, have you been to the Great Barrier Reef? All three of us would say yes. But only one of us went deep. And that is just like the Christian life. You have people who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but all they've been doing is snorkeling. It's safe. There's nothing dangerous about it. Oh, you might get a little water and a wave might splash into your, your tube and make you choke a little bit. But when you go deep 
you can't mess around because the deeps do not forgive. And the further down you go, the more dangerous it becomes, but the more glorious it becomes as well. And when you're deep, there might be a massive storm with 50-foot waves on the surface, and none of it will touch you because you're in the deep. So take that metaphor into this. And if you are in the deep things of God, no matter how hard the world tries to crash you, no matter how hard the world tries to put a tornado or a hurricane on top of you, you can sit there and go, I am safe in God's arms because I am deep with Him. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is Him. And no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the capital S, Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given, underline freely given, freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Yeah. It's all fairly self-explanatory what he's talking about. However, the end of verse... 13 is a very difficult Greek phraseology to translate. And we have many variations, many translations are frustrated by this. The last three words in the verse are pneuma, which is what word? Pneuma is? Spirit. Spirit. Okay. Spirit, pneumatikos. The next word is pneumatika. And then the third word is synchrino. There's no adjectives, there's no other words. It's just pneumatikos, pneumatikos, synchrino. And you're going, okay. How do you translate that? Because don't these look kind of similar? <laughs> I mean, you have, what you end up with is spiritual means or words, spiritual things interpret. Because this is the Greek word used in the Old Testament, uh, Greek to Old Testament for interpretation of dreams, same word. So you have pneumatika, pneumatika, synchrino. Now the ESV has it interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The NIV has it spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. None of them are wrong or right. It's just, it's a tough verse to translate. And the reason why this gets interesting is because of the next verses. Verse 14, so this is verse 13, talks about the natural person, which is psychikos or psyche. So that's the natural person, the natural man. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually new. Matikos, with a long O. So you have pneumatikos, pneumatika, pneumatikos. And he doesn't stop there. So, able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In verse 15, the New uh, 
create this new mod t cost again, all the way back to here. Greek translators kind of don't like this passage <laughs> because it's it's there's so much in it and so much that's easy to interpret. The bottom line is you have the Spirit of God mentioned in Greek four times in two or three verses. Numa, 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 numa. Contrasted to the natural man. And that's the point. If you want to get down to what is the bottom line here? He's trying to say the natural man cannot accept the things of the world, of the Spirit of God, because they're not able to understand them. They just don't have the Spirit in them. Whereas the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Because Isaiah 40 verse 13 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then my favorite verse of the entire chapter, But we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. So we go back and you start looking at this expression of wisdom, the wisdom of God, the testimony of God, the secret hidden wisdom of God being in Christ. It's all understood because we have the mind of Christ in us. There are those who will say, well, I, you know, I just don't understand the scripture. I said, well, then dig in. There are a lot of resources available to you. You don't have an excuse. I mean, it, yeah, it might be hard work. It might be unfathomable in the beginning. Um, I can tell you, over, over my many years, I, mean, I grew up in the church, and I thought I knew the scripture, and still I started studying it. And even now, <clears throat> here I come to these passages, and I get blown away. Look at what we're dealing with here. And <clears throat> I don't even touch on the extensive wisdom and brilliance of preachers and teachers and <coughs> excuse me <coughs> passages like this but I'll end with a, um, a wonderful little thing that Pastor Ray Pritchard brought out we have the mind of Christ which means we have the ability to have God's view on everything we should be able to understand the wisdom, the, understand what God's purpose, God's heart, and God's will is in situations because we have the mind of Christ in us. But let's contrast the mind of man, the mind of, mind of the natural man, with the mind that is filled with the Spirit of God. We and I'm going to say we meaning the natural man. We look at the outward, but God looks at the inward. We value popularity. God values character. We look at intelligence. God looks at the heart. We honor those with money, lots of it. But God honors those with integrity. We talk about what we own, and God talks about what we give away. We boast about who we know. God notices who we serve. We value education. God values wisdom. We love size. God notices quality. We live for fame. God looks for humility. Our view is shallow like the snorkeler, and God's view is deep. Our view is temporary, and God's view is eternal. There's really no other way to say it than to say amen, and let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for our attempt at least to look at the wisdom that only you bring. We have a tiny glimpse of what it is and yet to know that in Christ saved by faith 
justified, being sanctified, looking forward to the glorification in heaven, that we have your mind in us at all times, without restriction, without condition. What a blessing that is. Lord, thank you, thank, thank you as we move into our, our time of formal corporate worship that we take a moment in that worship time to thank you again and praise you for who you are and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.